Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 69 of the Burden of Command podcast. Thank every one of you for uh, sticking with me through this. 69 episodes, man. It seems like just yesterday I was firing this puppy up and and here we are. Um, you know, today's guest is another great guest from our friends over at C.S. Lewis Publicists and Company. Uh, they have provided me with some of the best guests I've had on this show. Uh, and uh, you all seem to love the folks that they send my way. Uh, so this partnership has been outstanding. So a big thank you to my friends over at C.S. Lewis Publicists. Uh, and, you know, keep up the great work with what you're doing and representing folks the way you are. Um, today's guest is Dr. Natalie Nixon. And Dr. Natalie Nixon has a great view on uh, leadership and artistry and creativity. And uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this if you consider yourself to be in any of those categories, an innovator, an artist, a creative uh, Dr. Natalie Nixon is going to be speaking pretty much directly to you and to those who uh, should be leveraging your talents. With that, I'm going to get out of the way here and let you guys get right into this uh, this great interview with Dr. Natalie Nixon. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Today's guest is Dr. Natalie Nixon. Natalie is president of Figure Eight Thinking, a consulting firm that emboldens organizations to apply creativity for transformative business results. She is a global speaker and regular contributor to Inc. I've actually shared uh, a few of your articles uh, on my social media channels. I, I really enjoy reading your work. Uh, but she shared, uh, she contributes to Inc. on creativity and the future of work. She's also the editor of Strategic Design Thinking, Innovation in Products, Services, Experiences, and Beyond. She holds a PhD in Design Management from the University of Westminster in London and a BA in Anthropology and Africana Studies from Vassar College and lives in her hometown of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Her new book, and what we'll be talking a lot about today, is The Creativity Leap. Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation, and Intuition at Work. Dr. Nixon, thank you for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, definitely. I can't wait to uh I can't wait to hear your answers to some of the questions here with especially with that uh 
kind of unique blend. I like your your kind of disciplines there, the the design and the anthropology piece. That that's that's kind of an interesting mixture. Thank you so much. I have really realized now that my very loopy background has come in handy. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get too far down the road, let me start you off where I start all of my guests. Uh, when you hear the phrase burden of command, what does that mean for you? Well, if I think about burden of command in terms of leadership, the way I interpret that is to for me to ensure that I am in a headspace where I am actively listening and where I am empathetic to the people whom I'm leading or with whom I'm interacting. I, I have really shifted a lot in the versions of leadership that I try to practice away from kind of a top-down leadership to a leadership that's much more about co-creation, that's much more about emergent leadership, which brings me back to the first part of my statement, which is to ensure that I'm really actively listening and, and attuned and aligned um, with the people whom um, you know I, I'm working with. Yeah, no, I like that. And I like the fact that you, you really emphasize that uh, creation is leadership because, I mean, it really is. No matter what you're creating, you are at le leading a field, leading a person, leading a product in a new direction. And that, that takes generating a lot of buy-in and concern for that process, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and ultimately getting buy-in, it requires a, a ton of active listening. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So again, uh, your your new book, uh, The Creativity Leap, Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation, and Intuition at Work. Now, what I love, especially when an author starts their book with a question, I always feel that as a very important question. They, they put it first for a reason. And you start yours out with a question to the readers. What is a leap? So what is a leap? Yeah, I started with that question because it's in, leaping is embedded in the title of my book, The Creativity Leap. And I wanted to explore with, with the reader all of the ways we can unpack what's required in leaping. And so what I say in that very first paragraph is I talk about how it's impossible to leap backward. You can fall backward, but you can only leap forward. I talk about how it requires vision. You need to have your eyes set on a target far off in the distance. It probably also requires that there's some sort of barrier that you can't just go around or walk around. You must gather up the kinesthetic energy to scale that barrier. So all those sorts of things are really important for me to set the stage of all that I'm going to be sharing in, in the, the pages that follow. Yeah, and I love the fact that you mentioned the word barriers because uh, there are a lot of them out there, especially when you come to creativity, right? Yes, there are. Um, starting with our mindset, <laughs> uh, we, we have this notion that there are creative types. And um, from my perspective, in my opinion, uh, to be human is to be hardwired to be creative. And we do ourselves a disservice when we ghettoize creativity in the arts because that's not fair to artists and it's not beneficial to our society at large, especially during this time of a lot of turbulence and uncertainty. It's, it's, it's essential that all of us exercise creativity as a competency. 
Now, you used the word there just a second because I, I remember reading the book and seeing that word. And I'm like, I wonder exactly what you mean the way you're using it there. Uh, ghetto eyes. What, what, what does that mean? Well, the, the technical definition of a ghetto is any sort of separation of a group of people based on identity or belief system. Um, we tend to think of ghettos in terms of ethnic separation in our society. And we've started to um, wrongfully, in my opinion, started to equate ghettos with African-Americans, for example. But there are Jewish ghettos, there are Irish ghettos, etc. And so when I talk about ghettoization or ghettoizing creativity, what I mean is that we tend to separate off creativity as only being the domain of a certain group of people in our society. But in fact, it's just a matter of whether or not you are actively exercising your creativity because their capacity is in each of us. Mm. And, I, and I wanted to, to give you an opportunity there because I, I agree with you. I, I, I'm a big fan of words and what they mean. And, and I, was, I was glad to see that, uh, that, that you used it that way because I agree with you. I think it's been uh, attached with this kind of very stereotypical negative stigma uh, towards the African American community as of late, so I was uh, I'm glad uh, I'm glad you kind of owned that word and kind of took it back, if you will. Yeah, thanks for the question. It's a good question. Yeah. Okay, so another important question that you asked to start chapter one, and I think this is one that some of us maybe already kind of know the answer to, whether we want to admit it or not. But why does creativity matter? Well, I contextualize my answer to that question about why creativity matters into this this particular moment. Now, consider that I started researching the book um, way before COVID-19 hit and um, which hit in, you know, March 2020 pretty seriously in the United States. Um, But right now, during what I'm calling a triple pandemic that consists of COVID-19, the unveiling to the rest of the world of systemic racism in the United States through all of the social justice protests, as well as unsustainability of our earth. That's what I'm referring to when I call when I talk about a triple pandemic. We absolutely need creativity um, and applying creativity as the engine for innovation in order to navigate this level of a VUCA environment, an environment that is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. There's no way that we can scale this level of complexity with a linear Gantt chart, right? We need um, a a much more adaptive approach and creativity equips us with a much more adaptive way to rebound um, and pivot. Okay. Yeah, well, and I like that you use those examples because you're right. I mean, those are those are three things that are really kind of hitting us right now. And I think most people, when they think of creativity, they think art, they think music. Uh, they don't think necessarily uh, a virus. They don't think necessarily systemic racism. They don't think uh, of these kind of everyday things. They kind of get stuck in the art uh, and music kind of realm. But you make a very, very valid point there that, you know, with, with the things that are going on specifically with uh, policing in the country, that's going to take some creative solutions to fix, right? Yes, absolutely. And we sometimes just jump to, in, to the word innovation. And I'm concerned that we often are meaning 
a range of things and we'd end up talking around and over each other. So in my view, it's important to pause and take a step back and actually start with creativity because creativity is the engine for innovation. I define innovation as invention converted into value. And that value might be social value, financial value, cultural value. But in order to convert an invention into an innovation, we need to apply creativity. And the best scientists, the most incredible engineers, the most impressive entrepreneurs, teachers, etc., are incredibly creative. Now, I kind of skipped over it, but I, I did it on purpose. I wanted to kind of circle back here because I like this uh, this model you have in the introduction section uh, where you talk about 3i creativity. So let the listeners know what is 3i creativity and how does that work together? Well, could I could I first explain how I define creativity? You absolutely may. Sure. So <laughs> I define creativity as our ability, our capacity to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems and also produce novel value. But the most simplistic, simple way of explaining is that it's, it's about toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems. And wonder is about awe, pausing, audacity, asking big, humongous, blue sky, what if audacious questions. Rigor is about discipline and time on task and heads down focused work. It's often very solitary. It's not very sexy. And both are absolutely essential. I also understood that it wouldn't be enough just to present to people this idea of creativity as being as toggling between wonder and rigor, which you know, my hope, my goal was to offer up a, a simple, accessible way to democratize creativity by talking about it as toggling between wonder and rigor. I, I also believe it was important to expand on my framework of creativity by getting into what I call the three eyes. And so the three eyes are how we can actually, actually exercise creativity. And they include inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. Inquiry is curiosity. It's about asking better, different, and new questions. Because if we keep asking the same questions, we're gonna keep coming up with the same answers. Improvisation is about being adaptive, actively listening, and being about the build um, and saying yes and, instead of, yeah, but we tried that five years ago and it didn't work, right? right. And then finally, intuition is a type of pattern recognition. And intuition, I've learned through my interviews of over 50 people for the Creativity Leap, that intuition is an essential asset the successful leaders call upon in order to make decisions. It is a, a way to, to end to better decision-making. So those are the three I's, inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. And, and I really like that because, I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, the, the inquiry part, and I think that is maybe a part where, especially for some of these more complex issues where people struggle it's not necessarily asking questions. It's asking the right questions, right? Correct. Asking the right questions, asking better questions, asking different questions. And the ways that we learn to ask different questions is by surrounding ourselves with people who think differently from us, who approach the same problem from a completely different angle. And, you know, the definition of curiosity 
according to Ian Leslie, who wrote, who wrote a really great book called Curious, the definition of curiosity is that there has to be an information gap. You have to know just a little bit about something to lean in a bit more and be curious. So that's that's one of the ways we can start to 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 use um, question framing as a way of thinking instead of uh, instead of looking at it only as a sign of ignorance. Now, kind of tying that together, uh, I was checking out your website, uh, figure8thinking.com. And one of the things you have on there is a card deck, a Wonder and Rigor card deck. And the way it's built is full of questions that help you identify different modes according to the challenge at hand. Uh, so does, am I reading that right, that this is designed to be a tool to help you ask better questions? Yes, it is. I actually developed the Wonder Rigor Discovery Deck before I wrote the book. And I, I created the card game because I wanted a way to help my clients through play, because when we play things stick, through play and through question asking, identify how much more wonder or how much more rigor they needed to add into a problem solving process in order to get to a much more innovative solution. And so I started um, first with a with a two by two grid, like any good strategist, I developed a two by two. <laughs> and then there are four basic domains. And it's really important that people don't think of these as kind of a Myers-Briggs. It's That's not what it is at all. In fact, what I encourage is for people to try on each domain as kind of a lens um, in order to see the challenge or the problem that you're working through from a completely different perspective and in a new light. And so it, the, the game, it really encourages you to map where you tend to be working through the challenge and how you tend to be working through the challenge in the present state and how you might work through the challenge in a future state and then what that might unfold. I like it. I like it. And I will have a link uh, to those cards in the show notes here. So uh, hopefully as people uh, get convinced that they need to go buy a copy of your book, they'll uh, decide to buy a, a deck of cards as well because they, they, very, they, they look very intriguing. I'm probably going to pick me up a deck here too. Um, we've talked about creativity. We've talked about the model and why creativity matters. Let's say that we, we accept all of these things as truth and hopefully that uh, the listeners do. Why do we like to dismiss creativity? Um, I think mainly because we don't really understand it. Um, it's really hard to be creative. We much we would much rather mystify it, and as I said, leave it uh, as something in the domain of artists or designers only. And the thing of the matter is, is that artists are exceptional at wrestling with the ambiguity and the discomfort of process of a creative process. And that's why it was really important for me to you know, definitely not stop at wonder when and when I'm defining and unpacking creativity, but to also include rigor because any creative endeavor requires an intense amount of solitary, heads down, disciplined practice, um, as well as the wonder. And we don't like to talk about the rigor part, right? It's 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 a little bit more fun and snazzier to only think about the wonder. But if we begin to demystify creativity, then we can hopefully um, respect the work of artists even much more than we do. And I don't think our society really respects um, the work of artists as much as we should. We kind of see that in 
um, the economic breakdown and compensation for artists. Um, but we also will try to exercise creativity in whatever work that we are engaged in, whether it's tech, technology, transportation, governance, um, teaching, etc. Well, yeah, and you know, it's one of those things we 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 kind of respect, and I, I do agree with you that we don't that respect artists as much as we we should for what they do. But we kind of respect the old artists, right? We 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 pay a lot of uh, uh, homage to the Michelangelos and the Da Vinci's, and and they had a very uh, strong crossover with with science and innovation and creation, right? Yeah. Well, they well two things about that point. Number one, um, in their lifetime, they often struggled. It's only once they're they're long and gone do we finally laud them. Um, uh, but number two, they really, those two examples that you just shared, especially Da Vinci, they really were polymaths. They were super curious and they learned to develop not just T-shaped thinking, but what I call pi-shaped thinking. So PI, 3.14, et cetera, et cetera. And so they have multiple depths and breadth of interests and expertise that they, that they really work hard at developing over a lifetime. And this is one of the creativity leaps that I think is essential that we make in our society and the way we're educating um, now in this fourth industrial revolution and especially moving forward and for the future of work, we have got to um, increase our creativity quotient by up in the ante and what we're curious about and learning by doing and learning experientially. So you, you go on to talk about making creativity accessible. Why is that important? Uh, well, just for what, all the reasons I just said that we've, we've mystified it. Um, and right now, especially if we are actually trying to innovate, we must start with creativity and it has to be part of our corporate boardroom conversations. It has to be part of the qualities and characteristics and skill set that we look for when we're hiring people. We have to build it into our organizational culture and figure out ways to cultivate creativity, to sustain it. Um, and a lot of that is going to require that we invite people to not show up to work in drag, <laughs> that we invite people to show up as their full hu human selves, because that will ultimately improve productivity. When people do not truly feel seen or heard, um, productivity plummets. And so when we allow for the creative capacity in our colleagues uh, to shine through and to be a part of the work at hand, then we'll, we'll reap huge rewards as a business. Yeah, no, and it's it's important, right? What you just said about you know showing up in drag. You're talking about you know masking and people thinking that when they show up, they have to act a certain way, they have to dress a certain way, they have to speak a certain way. If they're going to listen to music, they have to listen to a certain type of music. They can't be themselves, and that expends a huge amount of your emotional energy through the day. So how can you be creative when you're working essentially maybe sometimes with both arms tied behind your back, right? Well, I think that we have to be um, no pun intended creative and in how we, we figure that out. So if you work, especially pre-COVID quarantine, if you only had a small little space or desk or cubicle to work in, 
um, there are ways spatially and temporally that you can have your own sort of little creativity hacks. So what are ways that you can build in breaks during the day and pauses in order to refresh your mind and maybe um, be inquire with a colleague or walk the floor? Um, what are what are things that you can do in your space that um, ignite delight in you? How can you find time for more heads down focus and mastery of something? Um, we we have access to all sorts of platforms for learning now. You know, everyone from my uh, my 19 year old stepdaughter to my 80 year old mother um, lean in on YouTube as a as a learning platform. And so there are ways for for creativity to, and learning to be ignited in that way. Um, we can also broach the topic as um, a conversation with leadership, um, with managers, and really frame it as a question. I think oftentimes, depending on how the question is asked, questions can leave an opening that we're not asserting that this is the only way, but we're leaving it open as an opportunity. And I love starting questions with, I wonder if, I wonder what might happen if, you know, there, nothing bad can happen after a, a, a statement that begins with, I wonder, because <laughs> it leads to uncovering all sorts of good things. No, I like that approach. So speaking of wonder, Chapter two, you talk about, and you've already kind of touched on it a little bit, flow between wonder and rigor, right? So if I'm if I'm understanding this chapter right, and, and I, uh, please unpack it as deep as you want to go, but it's it's not good enough, or what you don't want to talk about just one or the other. You need to kind of let you let your mind wonder a little bit and then apply the rigor and get some work done moving towards what you just wondered about and then let your mind wonder again, right? Well, yes. And I often caution people not to think about this in a linear way. It's not about whether or not you start with wonder first or rigor first. The important thing is just to start because part of that flow I'm referencing is, is a corollary that I came up with, which is that wonder is found in the midst of rigor and the corollary to that is that rigor cannot be sustained without wonder. So that first part of the statement, wonder is found in the midst of rigor, whatever for you is a rigorous activity that requires a lot of attention to detail and time on task and discipline. For me, it might be uh, filing my taxes or something like that. Um, it's in the midst of rigorous activity that um, a moment of wonder emerges from my brain. It's always been there. But it's kind of like I am the neural pathways in my brain are synthesizing differently. So it allows for synthesis in other areas of my brain to happen. So that's often why when we're waking from a deep sleep, there's that moment of wonder, aha, things come together, a thought process comes together. The reason why I say that rigor cannot be sustained without wonder is that if we are in kind of a, a, a churn mode uh, of rigor and not allowing pot for pauses, breaks, times to be audacious, dreamy, two daydream, um, we will burn out. It, it, it's, it's not sustainable to only uh, pursue rigor. And I also just want to call out that sometimes we conflate rigidity for rigor and they are not the same thing. Um, so sometimes in some organizations and some corporate environments, if things have procedure, et cetera, 
you know, that's rigidity, but, but rigor is moments and time for that deep focused work, which I, I would dare to say we'd actually don't allow ourselves enough of that sort of time during a day. Hmm. Yeah, no, and I'll agree with you on the rigidity thing. I mean, it's, it's, I just had this conversation uh, with a lady we we're talking about, uh, you know, gender issues and, and, and she was talking about how she wished more organizations had more policies against, you know, bullying and harassment and all that. And I said, well, that's, that's true, right? But I wish we were at a spot where businesses didn't need those policies and we had leaders who were just doing the right thing. You, sh- you shouldn't have to have the rigidity of a policy if somebody's bullying in a workplace to be able to take an action. So how does somebody, I mean, I don't know if you have any any good tips, but how does somebody balance wonder rigor? I mean, is there a, uh, I'm sure it's not just as easy as it's a 50-50 rule. Is it, it depends on the situation or? Well, I, I do think once we first become aware of of these concepts of wonder and rigor, it's a matter of delving into them and practicing. And, and so for myself, I, I don't, I wouldn't say there's a exact ratio, but I, for example, make sure that I take daydream breaks, especially when I know I have intensive days ahead of me. Sometimes my daydream break is 90 seconds. And I actually, I literally use a timer. Sometimes it's for five minutes. And if it's a warm day outside, I'll sit outside on the front steps and I'll just look at clouds passing by. I might look at an ant crawl. If it's cold outside, I'll stand by a window and look up at the sky. But these sorts of pauses allow me to come back to the task at hand completely rejuvenated and it becomes something that I look forward to. So it's a matter of becoming incredibly self-aware um, we know when we've been hunched over our computer for way too long, and we know we should have gotten up um, a half hour ago to have a bio break or have a glass of water, do some laundry, stretch our legs, especially now that we're working from home. Um, you can feel yourself tightening and cramping up. Pause. Step away from the laptop or the you know the computer screen, and um, you know pay attention. Uh, there's a lot of of kind of empty motion that we go about throughout our day that is not about mindfulness. And if nothing else, creativity um, can sometimes painfully make you very self-aware. So it's, it's, it's a give and take a back and forth of just starting to practice it and, and, and making note of how you feel um, and giving yourself either more of the rigor, more of the wonder. For me, um, timing things is, is wonderful. And I always like to say that that creativity loves constraints, especially constraints on time. Yeah. Well, no, and and you said, uh, you said a lot right there and, and, and it, it made me wonder, well, there we go. Using the word wonder, right. <laughs> you know, maybe wonder, and maybe it's, it's too soon to really know right now, but we, we mentioned COVID and, and we're uh, a little over six months into that right now in the U S and a lot of people have been uh, locked down and, and, uh, work has changed. I mean, people are the vast majority of people are teleworking now versus what it was in, at the beginning of March when telework was like one of those perks that a company would kind of put forward as, hey, come work for us. Now it's kind of standard. With working from home and and having a little bit more freedom, a little bit more access to 
customize your workspace is kind of like what we mentioned before and and maybe play your own music to get you in a groove without having to worrying about uh, annoying, you know, maybe a coworker with ADHD that gets easily distracted or something. Have we seen an uptick in creativity yet? I don't know. Um, I I think that the the pendulum is still swinging back past center. Um, I think that certainly this fall, with a lot of working parents navigating their own work and balancing that between the needs of their children and their children's at home learning, I think we're going to see lots of of creativity hacks and ways to improvise and ways to kind of practice those three eyes of of inquiry and improvisation and intuition. Um, I know for myself, I have been focusing on redesigning my relationship with time by figuring out new rituals that will help me to be more productive and more creative. And so, for example, I, I, since April, started a new morning ritual that requires me to be asleep by 10 p.m., waking up at 6 a.m., and between 6 and 7 I ensure that I have done my ablutions, I pray, I meditate, I I write in my gratitude journal, and I stretch my body. And then I start my day. I I happen to be a morning person. I'm not really an all-nighter sort of person. So whatever works for you, um, there's going to be all sorts of opportunities to redesign our relationship with time and to really start to practice varying levels of curiosity and improvising and listening and acting on our intuition. No, I, I, I'm glad you shared that because my friends give me a lot of grief because I, I follow very similar uh, ritual, if you will, except uh, I scale it back even a little bit further. I, I try, I mean, obviously, if there's something on the TV that my wife and I want to watch together or something that requires me to stay up, I will. But I try to be in bed by 8, 830, and I'm usually up by, you know, 4 a.m., 430 at the latest. And yeah, well, it's, it's just because kind of what you're talking about. I love, you know, most everybody's still asleep. You know, I live in a subdivision. There's no cars zooming by. Nobody's mowing. No kids are running up and down the sidewalks. It's nice and quiet. And I get a lot done. Okay, so uh, chapter three. So it's uh, Inquire. And I, I love the title, Ask a Better Friggin' Question. So we kind of talked about that a little bit, but... Uh, you know, why don't we ask better questions? I think we, that's, first of all, that's a really good question. <laughs> I think that we don't ask better questions because we have become quite punitive about curiosity, especially in our learning environments. Um, we tend to be focused on uh, the solution instead of f- helping people to fall in love with the process. And when we fall in love with process, it can be a lot. It can be a lot messier. It can be pretty ambiguous, and there could be multiple possible scenarios that we could explore. Um, so, and there's a number of reasons why we have become much more solutions oriented. Um, I was a professor for 16 years. I was a middle school and high school English teacher for five years. So I have some experience in the educational system. Um, as a professional, obviously as a learner at, at, at a certain point, but I think a lot of it has to do with the culture of learning, the culture of education um, that doesn't necessarily always encourage asking questions. Um, we take it as, as a bit more threatening. We take it as a sign of ignorance, which of course it is. If you ask a question, 
you don't know the answer to something, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. And then that translates later into our working environments. I'm really glad you mentioned the word ignorance there, because it's one of the things my partner and I at the Leadership Phalanx, uh, we, we talk about. Like Everybody's talking about emotional intelligence, but we're talking about emotional ignorance, that lack of knowledge. And you mentioned those gaps earlier. That's what we talk about because we do a lot of work with leadership, diversity, and inclusion. And it's it's okay to have ignorance. It's it's not okay to have ignorance and just be okay being ignorant. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Not at all. Um, but that, again, going back to an earlier part of our conversation, that requires self-awareness right, to even right. to be to even know know that. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So um, what are some steps people can take? I mean, obviously, the self-awareness, you, when we're talking about things like this, you have to know what you don't know. But but how can people get to ask better questions? Um, I do think it starts with surrounding yourself with people who are different from you. It gives you a new perspective. Um, when we are able to travel again, I think travel often helps a lot because there's yes. so much new um, but you can you can go out of your comfort zone even within the town or city that you live in, and that can start to to burst curiosity. There's something I I, I call um, becoming a clumsy student of something, and that helps us to frame new and different questions. So those are some 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 examples of ways that you can build curiosity. And I will agree with that a hundred percent. You know. Um... My wife and I, we, we moved around a lot between the military and, and my, uh, what I call my day job now. And, and a perfect example of what Dr. Nixon's saying here, we had the opportunity uh, to, to work in Alaska, and we were living in South Carolina at the time. Well, we had two options. We either fly from South Carolina all the way to Alaska, or we get to Seattle, and then we fly from Seattle to Alaska. Well, we decided to take the cross-country trip, right? And we had things kind of planned out, some of the, the big things we wanted to do. But we got to uh, South Dakota, and obviously we wanted to see Mount Rushmore. Well, we did. We went and saw Mount Rushmore. And then somebody mentioned, hey, if you like this, you should go see the Crazy Horse Monument. The what? And so they told us what it was and pointed us to Custer. And we went and saw the Crazy Horse Monument for... People who haven't seen it, the Crazy Horse Monument uh, blows Mount Rushmore just out of the water in, in scale, size, beauty, everything. But that wasn't it, right? When, when we got there, they had this great, uh, the, the Crazy Horse Monument is working in, I'll say loose conjunction, because there's a little bit of contention between them and, and the Sioux tribes in the area. But for the most part, they're working with them. They had this thing called Craftsman, I think they called it Craftsman's Alley, where they brought in a lot of the Sioux craftsmen that were uh, making pottery and the the Kuchina dolls and things like that. And this one little trip, like kind of what you're talking about, it opened my wife and I up to this whole slew of different cultures and ideas that we had no clue even existed at the time. And so I, I'm going to just echo what you said. People, get out, explore. Even if you don't leave the country, there's a lot in this country to see. 
that can spur you to ask these questions and be curious and, and, and increase your own creativity. That's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, it's it's amazing how much we don't know. And I think part of getting wiser with age is getting clearer on what our lane is and, and what we what we don't know and, and being and being great with that, you know, really, really relishing um, what we can learn from others. Yeah, absolutely. Now, on this note, though, because you talk about um, you talk about trust and normalization some of this responsibility relies on the organization as well to foster that environment, right? Yeah. And, you know, that ultimately is why I've been, I've been laughing and saying, I, I'm going to uh, create a t-shirt that says it's culture, silly, because at the end of the day, so much of this work uh, needs to result in culture change. So that's a shift in leadership. It's a shift in priorities. It means that, as I mentioned earlier, we need to hire for, recruit and, and re attract and retain um, people who really are working on exercising their creative competency, uh, cultivating and sustaining it. And even the, the physical space of our work environments, um, you know, sometimes it feels like we're dying a slow death in some of the physical environments in which we have to work. So the space environment really matters in terms of how we show up to work and how productive we are. Absolutely. So again, listeners, uh, we're talking with Dr. Natalie Nixon. Uh, her book is titled The Creativity Leap, Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation, and Intuition at Work. Um, we, we've only got not even halfway through the book already. And this is been some really great conversations. I really appreciate you uh, efforting my questions here. Oh, you're uh, welcome. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate the time and your interest. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I love this. Uh, now, you, you make a statement in here, and you know, obviously I've read the book, so I'm kind of asking for the, for the listeners here, but you make a statement in chapter four, the future of work is jazz. What does that mean? Uh, that was my provocative way of, of helping people to understand that if we work improvisationally, we actually will be more innovative. And, and that chapter is a build on a 2014 TEDx Philadelphia talk that I gave, which was um, sharing out on some of my doctoral research where I, I worked with the Ritz-Carlton Hotel to understand the ways that they design experiences for guests and I used a heuristic from jazz music, it turns out that the Ritz-Carlton is an incredibly improvisational organization. Uh, it has to be in order to delight and surprise guests, in order to ensure that their staff really feel like that they are ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen. And so when I say that the future of work is jazz, right now, most organizations are not designed to be improvisational. In other words, they're not designed to be adaptive, self-organizing, or emergent. All the characteristics of of um, innovate of improv, improv, improvising systems. So that's really what that's speaking to, and it's a call to action. I, and that makes a huge difference, especially in the customer experience, right? Yes, absolutely. Customers have been able to sniff out inauthentic interaction. And when you empower people to make decisions on their own, to be about the build, to say yes and, to uh, be experimental without 
feeling that there's a risk of being punitive, then you end up delivering what guests need instead of having to deliver a formulaic outcome. I, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy. I was, but I was listening. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm not just a uh, producer of content. I'm a consumer as well. And I heard a guy talking about this very thing. And he said that one of the things he likes to do when he travels is uh, he likes to check out if a city has a kind of a high-end, well-known steakhouse. He's a big fan of high-end, well-known steakhouses. And uh, he actually was talking about um, there's a steakhouse here in Indianapolis called St. Elmo's. A lot of people probably heard of it. Uh, They do the annual uh, shrimp eating contest uh, downtown. But he said every time he goes to one of these, they almost always ask him, does he have a special request? And he's like, I I like to think out of the box. So my special request, and it's just because I think out of the box, he goes, I ask for a framed picture of Alfonso Ribera Carlton from Fresh Prince of uh, Bel-Air to be put on the table. He said in all the places he's been, St. Elmo's here in Indianapolis is the only place that has actually had that picture on the table when he showed up. But but that builds loyalty, right? Taking that extra step, getting creative, and finding a solution to an oddball request. Right. Builds customer loyalty. And it's fun in the process when, you know, when, when we play things stick and, and that kind of customer loyalty sticks to you're asking and inviting people to show up as their true human selves. That's, that's a great example. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I, I, let's kind of rapid fire the rest of these, these chapters here. We're coming up on about 45 minutes. Uh, putting bravery before mastery, chapter five. Uh, what was that about? Um, that's just about not letting perfection be the enemy of good um, and, you know, embracing an experimental mindset and and trying things and testing the waters. Um, that's one of the reasons why we tend to silo creativity in the arts or, as I like to say, ghettoize creativity in the arts, because artists are a lot more brave about being experimental um, and and build, test, learn, build, test, learn um, as they're building mastery. Okay. No, I like that. Now this one is of uh, chapter six of a, a special interest to uh, to me and, and what my partner and I do. We talk a lot about cognitive diversity, and so chapter six is commune, come together to create. So why is that important to the creativity process? Um, that chapter is really pointing to the reality that tribes exist. Right, we mm-hmm. tend to find connection and, and forge identity in tribes, but in order to truly um, collaborate, uh, sorry, create exponentially, it comes through collaboration, it comes through building community and for and forging partnerships with diverse perspectives. So that's what I, I was getting to with that chapter. Yeah, no, I, I like it. And again, I really want to encourage everybody to go out and pick up a copy of the book. And uh, uh, because if you're in an organization, I don't think there's an organization that exists now that isn't in the creativity game. Would you agree with that? I totally agree. It used to be that if you weren't in the tech game, you were in the wrong business. And and for now and going forward, your your company, no matter what your sector is, must be a creativity company at its core. Love it. Chapter seven, forecast, amplify what is uniquely human. 
Yeah, so that's really about um, in in this future of work conversations that some people are having. We are now in the fourth industrial revolution, which is signified by ubiquitous technology. And even as technology is all around us, it's going to become increasingly important for us to amplify what is uniquely human. And one of the things that's, that makes us uniquely human is our capacity for creativity. And the opportunity is to ensure that, that technology actually amplifies our creativity, uh, not, not stifles it. Yeah. And in chapter eight, remix, reframe, and repurpose. What is that one about? Yeah, that chapter is just really about the one of the, the, the foundational principles of creativity, which is about recombinations of ideas, of concepts, of objects, of people, of experiences in order to build the new. Um, and it's where I really emphasize that nothing is really new under the sun. And so it is it becomes it behooves us, especially now to be all about the remix. Yes. And and that, I think that is important, right? Because a, a lot of people feel like, hey, if I'm going to create something, it's got to be brand new. It's got to be something the world has never seen before. But that's not true. No, it, it, it it's um, actually the most. So how many times have you have you looked at an innovation and said, oh, I thought about that. I thought to do that a year ago or years ago, but you actually didn't repurpose it or recombine it in the way this particular person has. So kudos to them. They actually thought about it. They acted on it and it could be the most simple of adjustments, but that's okay because it, it ends up creating value in a very different way. Absolutely. It's like in the space that, uh, you know, that, that, that we're in, you know, I'm, I'm very upfront. I'm like, I'm not going to tell you anything new, right? The, the, the stuff that, that we're talking about here, one of the reasons Sun Tzu's Art of War is so popular today is for a 2,700-year-old text, it still contains all of these same things. Like there's one of those we talked I had somebody, because again, we talk a lot about diversity and inclusion. Well, obviously 2,700 years ago, they weren't concerned with diversity. Well, no. One of the things Sun Tzu says is success depends on three things, the heaven, the earth, and the people. And when he explains what he means by the people, he says... Make sure you know your people and you have the right people in the right place and you put them in the right place to succeed. That's what diversity is. And that's 2,700 years ago. Yes, that's today. true. That's really true. It's a great point. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so your final thoughts. Get out of the building. Your final, uh, final thoughts on increasing your CQ. So I'm going to CQ is creativity quotient. Yes, that's right. It's a, it's a phrase that I made up to talk about this capacity that we all have to create. Okay. And uh, you talk about see things differently, be a translator, play, and leap. Yeah, and I, and I really wanted to end the book with a call to action about leaps that we can all make. In other words, shifts. And those shifts include things such as um, moving away from only valuing deep specialization to also valuing collaboration and community, shifting away from only uh, valuing what's rational to becoming ambiguous friendly and ambiguous confident and those sorts of things. But making those leaps, I, I just kind of wanted to bring the book full circle by the end and give people explicit calls to action so that they could work in a much more inspired way. I love it. 
And then finally, kind of to close things out, you have an appendix uh, that is 21 questions and suggestions to jumpstart your creativity. Uh, and, you know, reading through some of these questions here, they're very valuable questions. Uh, I mean, you, you kind of s touch them. How often do you daydream? You know, how many times as kids were we yelled at for daydreaming, right? <laughs> So I would imagine most adults probably read that and say, well, you're not supposed to daydream. That's not productive. Well, I, I hope that people buy the creativity leap. They'll take a look at those those 21 questions and they'll be inspired while some of the, the suggestions that I give may feel counterintuitive. My job is to be a provocateur. <laughs> so I definitely think people will get that from reading the book. I, I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. Well, Dr. Nixon, we're sitting around uh, 50 minutes or so here. Uh, I think it's probably time to look at uh, working to close things out. Is there anything that we didn't get a chance to cover that you would like to, to touch on for the listeners? No, I don't think so. This was a really wholesome and, and comprehensive conversation. I really thank you for all your great questions. Yeah, no, and I appreciate you for being here and, and, and answering and, and you know, being open and, and, and thank you for writing the book. I mean, first of all, this is a great book. Thank you. That, that's high praise. That's a real compliment. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Not a problem. Not a problem. So uh, listeners, uh, let's, they've listened to it. They're ready to, they've listened to the podcast. They're ready to go get the book. They want to find out more about you. Where can they go to find out more about you? Get in touch if they have any questions, maybe want to have you come speak to their organization uh, what's a good way to do that? Oh, that's I would love that. It's super easy. They can just go to figure8thinking.com. That's figure eight like in, in ice skating, and it's the number eight. So it's F-I-G-U-R-E, the number eight, thinking.com. My email is natalie, N-A-T-A-L-I-E, at figure8thinking.com. They can also download a free sample chapter of The Creativity Leap, my new book, and they will also be opting into my awesome newsletter, which is called Ever Wonder. It comes out about six times a year, so we don't bombard you. And I share tons of free content on all of my social media, as well as on my YouTube channel. And I look forward to hearing from, from people. I'm, I'm building up my coaching practice. I'm launching a new course next month called Your Creativity Leap. And I love speaking. It's one of the ways I prototype my ideas and I have a ton of fun with speaking. So I hope to hear from some of your listeners. Outstanding. Well, there you go, listeners. You have a call to action. Uh, as always, the links are going to be in the show notes. So you can reach out uh, to Natalie. You can take advantage of those uh, uh, the, the, the free chapter and sign up for the newsletter. Um, and again, I want to encourage you to grab a, a copy of the book and uh, get a copy of those uh, uh, the Wonder Rigor cards. Those look very interesting. Um, and as always, for me, uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, you can reach out to me at burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. Well, Dr. Nixon, again, thank you very much for spending pretty close to the last hour with me and my listeners. I really, really appreciate it. And listeners, thank you for being with us. Uh, let us know what you got out of this. We really uh, look forward to hearing from you. Uh, appreciate you sharing the show. Make sure you're subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show so uh, those algorithms uh, get to work and help messages like Dr. Nixon's get spread uh, far and wide. 
Uh, so thank you for your time. And I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that the No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Electric acid.